0: Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our day, our day to come and worship you. This is the day that we start our week anew. And Father, we do it to lift up our voice to you, to offer to you that which you've given to us. Back, Father, for the work you've done on our behalf, bringing us to salvation, Father. We thank you for that. We thank you for the message Steve will bring today. We pray for him to have just great joy in the message that he's put together, that you've worked through him, and he will deliver that to us, and we will be eager and ready to listen and, and apply the truths that we hear. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it builds us up and prepares us for life ahead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, still in Romans 6, so you can be turning there if you want. Fourth message, it's not a verse-by-verse message, it's not what we typically do here At Lakeside, it's more of a topical message. Fourth message in a row here, it's actually my sixth message in Romans 6. There were two prior dealing with two errors that Paul exposes in the context of Romans 6 regarding sin. That one, there were people who were saying to him, Paul, we hear you teaching, that grace abounds and God loves to forgive sin and and apply more grace to that ever-increasing sin. So therefore, what we're hearing you say is it's okay to continue to sin. And not just continue to sin, sin all the more. And and Paul says, no, that's not what I said. And then he goes into Romans 6 and tells us what he meant. Later on in Romans 6 comes another error up. People are saying, well, hey, grace has replaced the law. What's going to happen now? We don't have the law like that force over us to keep us from sinning. It's gone. We're just going to sin like crazy. That's what you're telling us. That's what you're teaching. Paul again says, no, that's not the case. So that's a major theme and thrust of Romans, Romans chapter 6. But there's more. There's more in there, and that's what we've been doing the last three weeks. This is the fourth one, a topical theme, using a particular verse as the central point, the key point at which, more like a hinge, that we deviate from that central point and we find more truth within this chapter to deal with. And that central point is verse number five. So if you have your Bibles open, let's go ahead and read from verse one through to verse seven. Verse 5 being the key verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. If we were to continue reading the rest of Romans 6, there would be a word that we I've just said, three, four, five times already, continue to come back over and over again throughout this chapter. In 23 verses, 20 times in those 23 verses, the Holy Spirit has Paul insert a word in Greek called hamartia. How many know what it means? I know Greg does. No one's raising your hand, but thank you. Sin. So 20 times is the word sin found in 23 verses, or a close cousin to the word sin might say transgression. And so here's something we haven't hit on yet in our topical look through Romans 6, the issue of sin. Paul writes to us over and over again in this chapter, be done with it, sin. Be freed from it. Be unmastered by it or don't be mastered by it again. Don't present yourselves to it. And I, I talked about that last week. A lot of you have a Bible version that may, may say don't yield yourself to it. So kind of like stay away from it. But the opposite is what present means. Don't go forward and shake hands with your old friend. Okay, don't present yourself to it anymore. Don't, not, not just don't yield to it. Don't come back to it like it's an old friend. Don't present yourself to it. Don't be enslaved by it. Ultimately, where we're going today, be wise about sin. So everybody's favorite topic, right? We're going to talk about sin today. So Paul's been rebutting two major errors from different points of view that have been coming back to him, saying, you're teaching us, Paul, that it's okay to sin. And he emphatically makes the point throughout this chapter, no, it is not okay. The reason why We're united with Christ. That's our pivotal verse that we're going to look at and where we're going to jump from again today. We're looking for results of our spiritual union with Christ. And here's the fourth result. That we have the indwelling intelligence required to wage war against sin and win. We have the indwelling intelligence required to wage war against sin and win. Back in Romans 1, verse 22, so as Paul's building up, we would look back in, in Romans 1, say, prior to our salvation, to look at it another way. Prior to our salvation, Romans 1, 22, Paul tells us that we professed wisdom, but we were total fools. We were really fools, he says, with darkened hearts. Then, sin was our friend. We presented ourselves to sin all the time, said, hey, Nice to meet you, old friend. How are you? Sin was our friend, not our enemy. God was our enemy and not our friend. So, why do we need to be wise to sin? Because it is no longer our friend, it is now our greatest enemy. And one thing Lakeside's all about is pursuing doctrinal depths. We want to have a strong foundation in the word doctrinally that we can soundly stand upon so that we know error when it comes our way. But we must also be building a strong foundation in the knowledge of truth about how we overcome sin as believers. Doctrine's vital, vital to learn. But I think there's a warning there that, that I need to just touch on before we go on. So we can be a church that teaches to greater levels of understanding of sound doctrine, but that great intelligence is useless unless it's accompanied by a holy life, a walk with Christ. Unless it's accompanied by increasing sanctification, where we are sinning less in our life. You have a problem when your greater knowledge is not resulting in even greater levels of sanctified living. I will often have somebody stop and and get into some discussion with me about a doctrine. And it dawned on me that, that that discussion has to have with it the outcome. How do we live more holy if we're going to dig deeper here and know more? Not just to know more, to satisfy our yearn for learning. How is it going to help us learn to live more holy? So we dig deep in doctrine for the outcome of how it reduces sin, increases holiness in our living, or why do it? I think positive harm is the outcome when there is doctrinal knowledge that doesn't result in holy living. If doctrinal discussions produce strife instead of sinning less, then I would have to judge that Satan might just be behind that strife. Because Satan knows firsthand the power of true holiness. Where would we go to see that? Matthew chapter 4. You don't have to go there. I'm going to give you the, the easy overview. You've studied this before. You've read it before. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And over the course of 40 days, the God-man Jesus Christ resisted Satan. And in the end, Jesus rebuked Satan, commanding him to go with these final words. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him. Now we're talking about sin, so it's possible someone in here is beset by an ongoing sin. It would make sense that we would check the level of our worship, the level of our service to Christ. The way we overcome sin is to worship him in knowledge and truth that we find in the word on how to live holy and resist sin. The devil has no response to holiness coming from your devotion to the word of God and the worship of God as your life's priority. So the past three weeks, everything that we've gone through that Paul has taught us up to this point regarding the whole of salvation is that it has been all of God's work alone. And he takes us now all the way to the point of being sanctified so that we have the ability to walk forward in life increasingly more sanctified. Not only keep relying in faith, the truth of Christ in us is the reason why we can walk holy. But that we will now produce the personal exertion to walk it out by following Christ. Nowhere in scripture do we find sanctification means we let the Holy Spirit do all the work. We run and we fight. We exert real energy at being holy and resisting sin. Our union with Christ by faith is both the beginning of our holiness and the continuance of our holiness. The life that we now live in the flesh, we must live out in faith in Christ, and that faith will be our victory. Living out our faith, though, requires effort on our part. We need to provide personal exertion to the task of holiness because we've been asked to do so by the Lord. It is the ultimate reason for our election that we be holy as He is holy. And God received glory and worship as a result. While justifying and sanctifying grace rests on Christ, further sanctification is a result of our striving toward holiness with our whole being. So, when it comes to our walk in Christ, we have to be all in. We hear that term a lot. We need to be all in. So, our fourth result of our union with Christ is this we have the indwelling intelligence required to wage war against sin and win. The Holy Spirit's in us. That's the intelligence. The Word of God opens to us. That's where we find the increasing intelligence to know what it is we do. Now, I've got to tell you, the wording for this week's result that I just read again was influenced a little bit by news reports of the week. In regards to any expectation to ever win a war between humans, I heard a news analyst say... And in context, it was a war between us and terrorists that are going on right now. The only way to win is through superior intelligence. We have to know what they know. So the issue was we've captured a terrorist. He's coming back for trial. We're going to convict him, put him in jail. But this guy was saying, no, hold him out there somewhere on a ship and get everything he knows out of him before you bring him in. Because we need to know everything he knows so we can fight more intelligently. And his premise was that if we don't do that, we're either going to be killing them or they're going to be killing us. There's no way around it. So this message is about our battle with our greatest enemy, sin. And the same premise applies. Either we're busy killing sin or it's busy killing us. If you feel like you've fought a losing battle with sin or sins or have a sin that has been a lifelong nemesis, The Holy Spirit indwelling us has made available all the intelligence we need to understand the battle strategies detailed in the Word. Now, in a half hour, 40 minutes, there's no way to get exhausted. We'll just look at some of those points. Our success in our battle to destroy indwelling sin will come from a combination of our faith and our doing. Resulting in our being conformed to the image of Christ, as that, again, was the intended outcome of our election. And Scripture is not silent about this enemy within, sin in the flesh. I mean, we can just look at any man of faith or hero of the faith that is in Scripture whose life is detailed, and how many have lived a life of moral perfection? On the contrary, the heroes of the faith that Scripture holds up for our inspection are those who have been deeply humbled by sin. One of the most humbling passages, I think, is just turning the page from Romans 6 and going to Romans chapter 7. Paul is deeply humbled, and here's a guy we call super saint, deeply humbled by sin in the flesh. Paul details his struggles with the flesh to practice holiness throughout Romans chapter 7. But again, nowhere is it found in Scripture an allowance to believers just to sit back and not always be in the thick of the battle against sin. So this is timely to hear. We've got to be in the battle. I think it's timely from, from this perspective of today is that in America, people don't want to go to war. And if we do, we want to get out of it really quick. We'll abandon it to the point of losing the battle today. That's, the way, that's where America has come. This is battle we can't get out of. This is lifelong. We've got to get our heads around it and get in the battle if we're not in it. So we need intelligence. We need intelligence through the Holy Spirit from the Word to be wise in battle so that we can produce ongoing sanctified living because the truth of our justification is at stake if we're not in the battle. What do I mean by that? Two things about justification. One thing we've been talking about the past few weeks, we can be assured that in God's Word, about the declarative nature of justification by faith without works. But we learn other doctrinal truth, that there's demonstrative proof. What would James say? Be doers. So there's both the declarative nature of justification, there's the demonstrative nature of justification. We have to be doers of the word. And those works show the proof of Christ in us. Paul and James are in agreement about the, two. the work we would do as justified people is to be sanctified and be dealing with sin. So again, we need to get wise about it. A quick biblical definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of God's law, of his word. It's a trespassing outside the boundaries that he set up for us. As with the last few Sundays, I've got a personal story. I was a great transgressor of God's law. I thought back to a teenage time. I lived in the mountains, lived in the woods far from anything. And I could walk about 40 minutes through virgin timber, 100 feet tall, through the woods and come to a clearing. And the only thing I can tell you about what I then saw would come later in a movie called Jurassic Park. There was a fence, but not just a little old fence. It went way up. 15 feet or more, and every 10 feet, warning, no trespassing, danger, wild animals. And inside, on the other side of the fence, there was a wealthy man who was at work putting his dream together of collecting wild animals to have a wilderness park. And today, if you go back to where I grew up and Carla grew up, it's called Northwest Trek. You get on a train, and you get to travel through the woods and see all the wild animals. Well, I found a place to get under the fence. Yes. There were bears. There were mountain lions. There were buffalo. There were a lot of animals. Fortunately then, they were in pens. He was collecting, and then they were set free. So I think the last time I went in, I heard twigs snapping behind me, and I thought, okay, maybe they've been let out. It's time to go. So I transgressed local law when I trespassed into this man's domain, and I put myself in danger. Whenever we transgress God's word, whenever we ignore the warning signs, the no trespassing signs, we deserve what I deserve, the consequence for that stupidity. Transgression is not a word to take lightly. It means lawbreaking. And we are lawbreakers against God when we sin. I mentioned Romans 1, verse 22, a little while ago. While our hearts were dark and pre-salvation to grasp any truth about God. Now, Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that's no longer the case. We know what we're doing when we do it. There, it says this, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We now can see what unbelievers cannot. How God views our sin and how utterly sinful we are compared to his holiness. It was God through the Holy Spirit who shone this light of purity into our hearts, exposing our sinfulness in contrast to his holiness. So what does the Holy Spirit's light expose deep within our hearts? It exposes a cesspool in relation to his holiness. What the light exposes is that sin is not only still in us, but that it is an active force at work against us to bring forth more sin. Even those of you who have had success in battles against sin should know that when sin has left us alone, it's only for a period of time. You can't leave it alone. You have to continue to battle. Paul in Romans 7 describes the work of the flesh in opposition to our walk of holiness as a law that continues to defy the law of God in us. Let's. We should be there. It's just the next door chapter, Romans 7. Let's read verses 14 through 23. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. If you want, you can turn with me over to Galatians 5, but I'll just read one verse there that goes goes along with what we just read. Galatians 5.17, Paul writes this, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the holy spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please so there in galatians 5:17 paul calls the active work of the flesh as a settled desire against the spirit of god in us settled desire is enmity we talked about what that really means last week enmity there's not going to be peace God is not going to change. He hates our sin. He hates it, and he's opposed to it. They're never going to be friends. There's a settled desire of opposition. The law of God is in the inner man of every believer, Christ in us. But he has come to dwell in hostile territory. The flesh is opposed to the law of God, and the moment we are saved, the battle is on. It cannot end. The opposing laws desire the extreme opposite of one another. It's like those magnets when you turn them the right way. They repel each other. They exist in perpetual enmity and there's no peace or truce going to be found. So what happens to us if we neglect the call of Scripture to oppose sin? Well, David gives us some great insights, some great descriptive words. He knew it all too well what will happen And maybe some of us, when we hear these things, we understand it all too well too. All too well about what the impact on a believer is who has allowed sin victory after victory. We don't have time to turn there, but Psalm 31.10, if you want to go read it. Psalm 31.10, David describes the advances of victorious sin as similar to any disease that causes the body to begin to waste away. Sin that is allowed to have victory after victory is no different than a cancer in us that is eating away at our vitality. In cancer doctors get it. They understand it. They have to wage an all-out aggressive war to kill every bit of cancer when they find it, right? If they're going to beat it. And then they keep checking thereafter, right, Mike? Find out, is it back? Is there a hint of it? We've got to go back to battle. They they get the idea that we're supposed to get about how we battle sin. David would also agree personally that if we continue to allow sin victory, we will find that our strength to wage war wanes as sin rises. In Psalm 38, verses 3 through 6, David describes the advances of sin in the way a disease advances, saying it has taken the soundness out of his flesh and the health out of his bones. In Psalm 40, verse 12, David describes this sin as causing him to not be able to see. But he's not talking about literal blindness there. He's going along with what he wrote in, in Psalm 32. He is so bowed down by the weight and the impact of sin on his body, he can't look upward. Literally, sin's victory weighs him down such that he can't even lift his head to look upward to God for his renewal. As my, my oldest daughter likes this this saying... David was in a very bad patch. And we don't want to be in that patch of life. So it must be our present duty to grow in the grace we have been given, wage war against the flesh and the sin that resides therein. Paul in 2 Corinthians seven one calls believers to the task of cleansing ourselves from our sins defilement. And he says this about how sin defiles. He says, our sin defiles our flesh and our spirit. But it's not the Holy Spirit there. It's our, our spirit. It defiles our flesh and our spirit. This is what David alluded to when saying he couldn't see. He was bowed down. He couldn't look up where he needed to go to get the help to battle sin. He had no joy. He only had sorrow. Another way sin defiles our spirit is that sin has the ability, and this is what Paul was dealing with in Romans chapter 6. Sin has the ability to introduce to us heresies similar to those Paul's dealing with. In Romans 6, it suggests it's okay to continue to sin for some ungodly reason. So the sin contaminates us in the flesh and the spirit. I alluded to that last week. I've heard people tell me, God made me this way. It's his fault. I can't stop this. That's a heresy. Our task as believers with Christ in us is to perfect holiness, something that's impossible to do without the constant killing of sin in our flesh. Now, as I look around, I know there's some who have served in the military. They got practice at killing. Not many of us have served in the military, though, so we're not trained in warfare. But that's okay. Scripture does give us intelligence on how to fight this battle. Again, this is an exhaustive list. There's more to, more to this. could go on for weeks if we just stayed on this issue. Does Scripture, though, give us guidance or intelligence as to where we focus our war campaign to kill sin? And I'll just give you a couple of specifics. Here are two ways on how we effectively kill sin. Jesus, in Matthew 3.10, speaks of cutting down a tree. But he gets real specific about where you cut it. You cut it at the root. How many of you have ever taken the chainsaw and cut down a tree and left a stump sticking out? What happens within the year? It starts growing back. You left the roots behind. We all know that if we've got a yard. You go and grab the weed and pull it out and you just break it off. It's coming back. You've got to get to the root to kill it. Or you just can count on it coming back. And sin's the same way. Your victory will be short-lived if you don't take care of it the right way. In James 1, something I've taught on before, so it's it's very clear and graphic in my mind, what he tells us. He says, and there we find a little more intelligence that helps us to find out where those roots are. A kind of a descriptive way to identify roots. So start turning to James 1. There, James gives us this analogy. He says that once lust has conceived, it's too late. So he uses the term conception. Therefore, lust is the root of sin or the seed of sin. Lust is comparable to the seed that's required to impregnate and then gestate into fully grown sin. So lust is the root we need to get at. Just two verses, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. All right. If we think about how small the seed of conception is, we can't see it with our own eyes, can we? If we had a health class in high school, maybe we got to see the video, the, the film, and you see under the microscope exactly what it looks like. And they're small. In human terms, we can't see the seed of conception without a microscope. So we bring that back to lust. How small of a thought of lust do you target? How small of a thought of lust do you need to target to kill it? You see where I'm going? You have to be practiced at killing the first thought of lust the moment it comes into your mind. So at what point do we need to be busy to kill the seed of lust in our mind? It's the first moment. The first thought. You put it down in veterinary terms. If we let small thoughts of lust go by, James's principle is this, that sooner or later, there will be, not might be, there will be conception. And we will fall. The lust will become an action of sin. Now, where it doesn't, doesn't connect in human terms is it takes nine months to have a baby. That's the gestation period. Sin doesn't work that way. It can be like that. Thought of lust, action of sin. It can be over time. You can resist. James is telling us that it will happen. If you don't get practiced at taking out that first thought of lust. So here's the cute little thing to remember. When we allow lust to linger longer, in the mind, we're giving them our approval. We're giving them the approval to hang around and cohabitate in the same space as the Holy Spirit. And be reminded again, these two don't cohabitate together. We're either going to waste away by allowing it in and having it take over space, or we're going to deal with it and put it out. Turn back to Galatians chapter 5. So we have this indwelling intelligence in us, the Holy Spirit, required to wage war against sin and win. How does the Scripture tell us the Holy Spirit works in us? We're going to read Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24, very familiar, I think, to most of us. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24, it says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunken, carousing, and things like those. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So what's happening here? What's Paul setting up for us? He's setting up to us the contrariness of these desires between our flesh and the Holy Spirit. The point Paul is making here is that contrary desires can exist at the same time. If your thoughts of lust are turning to immorality and impurity you're not having joy and peace at the same time you're you're now letting that sin take over in your life you can't simu- simultaneously have the desires of the flesh agitating you if you are walking by the spirit whereby you are actively warring against indwelling sin such that you are doing what Paul says at the end of verse 24 you're actively crucifying the flesh you've just pushed that away if Verse 16, walking by the Spirit, and verse 24, actively crucifying the flesh, is what you're doing, there will result the fruits of the Spirit's taking over. So when we walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, the fruits of the spirits flourish in us. Paul in Philippians 2.13 reminds us when we are working out our salvation in holy living, then God is at work in us through the Holy Spirit to will and work for His good pleasure. But if you're here today and you have let sin have victory upon victory and you feel the way David did, as I described in a few psalms that I read, weakened and deprived of life, your head's down. How do you pick it back up? How do you see your way out of your dilemma? Two words we know all too well. Confess and repent. Don't seek relief from non-biblical sources. Confess and repent. Don't go anywhere but to the Lord. And get help from a brother and sister who will help you go to the Word, help you confront your sin with the truth. What happens if we go to unbiblical methods to deal with our sin? God will thwart us in that direction. Let's see this in Scripture. Turn back, Old Testament, just the other side of Daniel in the book of Hosea, chapter 5. What happens when we choose an unbiblical method Of dealing with our sin. Here, the players are the nation of Israel. Hosea chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. We're going to see how Hosea applies to the nation of Israel as an example we can grasp about what happens when we look for unbiblical methods to deal with our sin. God is going to thwart us in that direction. Hosea 5, verse 13. It says, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, talking about their sin, then Ephraim did what? Did he go to the Lord? No, he went to Assyria. Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, but he was unable to heal you. No kidding. Or to cure you of your wound. Verse 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. I will go away, return to my place, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, confess and repent. In their affliction, though, this is key, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's an obvious question. Who wants to wait for that? Why would you want to take an unbiblical path? To deal with your sin and wait for the infliction that's going to come? We don't want to do that. So if you're already feeling the sting of God's consequences for your sin, let's just read on. Hosea 6 verses 1 through 3. Where we find that we can pick up our head. We can turn to him for spiritual healing, restoration, and peace. Hosea 6, come let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. That's where we come back to. The intelligence is in the word. The intelligence is in us. Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. We press on to know the Lord. We press upward in holiness. We find relief when we press on to know God's truth that he will heal his own when they confess and turn back to him. So we get walking and we start crucifying the flesh. Something else we have to remember about our enemy, the flesh, we have it until death and glorification. As much as we war against sin, effectively there is none who completely eradicates it in this life. Like Hosea's example, Paul tells us that if we have a life, using the same words as Hosea, of pressing on. If we live a life of pressing on and up, that's the life we choose. Turn to Philippians. We'll see the same words again, of pressing on. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 7 through 14. Here we're going to see how Paul gives us a pattern to follow in a lifelong fight against the desires of the flesh. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7 through verse 14. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, Here's the words, but I press on, at least that's how the NASB puts it, I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we press on in knowledge, we press up in holiness. The question is, maybe for some, when are you going to do this? When are you going to turn and press on and up to knowledge of the Lord to overcome sin? We don't want it to be after God spanks you with affliction. Because you will come then, if you're a true believer. We press on in knowledge of God, we press onward and upward in knowledge to our eventual death and glorification, free from the flesh and sin. A little more intelligence I found along the way in my studies this week as kind of a warning about the whole battle. Paul makes mention at least twice, I found this week, that sometimes we can work really effectively at holding back that sin that's beset us. We're doing the right job, we're getting it done, it's not Causing us trouble. It's kind of like we put a dam across that river, but the water's just backing up. Sooner or later, that water has got to find its way around and come out another place. In Philippians 3, we move into verse 4. It says this. I'll give you an example. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. Verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntechi to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also. And it goes on. Paul knows his people. He knows their testimony. He knows what the gospel changed in their life. He knows what sin the gospel has helped them overcome. And guess what's happened now? They're two believers, and they're having a problem with each other in the church. The water has just found a new way around, and a new sin has come up. Galatians 5, another example. I'll turn there and get to it. We read through verse 24. We go on to the end of the verse. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, Envying one another. Paul just didn't have that pop into his head. The Holy Spirit directed him there. But he knows his people. He knows the churches he's outplanned. He knows what's going on. He knows what sins they have turned from. And here they're in the church. They're believers. And this is going on. The water's just been diverted. It's come up somewhere else. We've got to watch for that. In our own lives. Another thing we need to watch for And not be confused about is what it means to have occasional victories with sin, only to have it return again and again. Obviously, what it means is you're not very effective at killing the sin. A current example that we can always go to, is pornography. if you have currently defeated that lust again, yet you have not taken the full inventory of the many ways in which it can tempt you to come back to defeat you again, have you really overcome it? The answer is no. Unless you take every radical step to cut off every way it can enter back into your life. So that when temptation refuels your lust, you go, Oh, I have a way back in. You've got to lock down everything. Occasionally overcoming sin, we're taking the wrong actions. We're not doing what Scripture tells us to kill it. So what is true to the call of Scripture in dealing with sin? Scripture's call is to the habit or practice of killing sin at all times to make sure it's always weakened. Because you will never destroy it completely. Paul in Romans thirteen fourteen tells believers this. He says, "Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts." Provisions was a term we always used when we were going camping. We got to get our provisions. We got to eat. I need the big candy bars. You know, I'd give my mom my list of provisions. I need to be fed. Don't feed the flesh. Anything that supplies what it needs to lust all the more. If you do, you're responsible for the war that's going to break out in your flesh. 1st Peter 2:11 tells us to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. weaken sin in the same way that it weakens you. Take away its source of life. Deprive it of blood and oxygen. Kill the thoughts as they come. Confess and repent. Get into the word, gain knowledge, press on in knowledge. Put sin down and daily nail those besetting sins to the cross and leave them there. Paul uses the image of the cross in Romans 6 to remind us that we are united with him in the likeness of his death. Christ died for our sins. So if we fall and we have reached up and pulled one of those sins that we nailed there, we brought it back in. Put it back. Make it a daily exercise, a daily habit, a daily pattern to be a true disciple of Christ. And whatever has been the sin or sins that frequently cause us to fall, the habit is not to forget or hide it until it rears itself up again. Confess, repent, and don't forget. First rule of war is know your enemy. Be wary of its ways and methods of attack. Psalm 51. David comes before the Lord, having been confronted by the prophet Nathan one year later. Tried to hide it and forget it. Let me go there. I'll read it to you. Just the first three verses. Psalm 51, 1 through 3. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And here's what he says in in verse 3 of Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If David truly means to keep from falling to that sin again, he's got to keep it ever before him. He he needs to know his transgressions, his weaknesses that would cause him to fall again to the same lust and temptation. Now, David didn't have software back then to block the computer, right? Hopefully he had someone he designated to go up the ladder, get on the roof, look around, and say, King, it's okay. Come on up. And he gave that person the power to say, No, let's do something else today. I don't think this is a good day to be on the roof. So we need to study our enemy, know the ways in which it can cause us to fall again in the future, take proactive steps to stay ahead of the reoccurrences. We need the right motivation to deal with this sin problem. There are several right motivations that Scripture would attest for our diligence in dealing with sin. The right motivation should cause us to react like Joseph, right? Right? And not sin. Joseph hated what God hated and loved his God such that when confronted with temptation, he proclaimed, How can I do this great evil and sin against the Lord, my good and gracious God? So, one right motivation behind a believer's desire to forsake sin is due to his coming to hate what God hates. Hate your sin. Another right motivation is that we come to love Christ for his going to the cross on our behalf. Another motivation is not wanting to grieve the Holy Spirit. He is grieved when we give safe harbor in our hearts to lust, that place which he entered in to help us destroy sin. And finally, a right motivation is is that we should be motivated just by obedience. That's really what we were talking about last week, the Lordship of Christ and his demands to forsake sin. So we can reference the entire of Romans 6 20 times in 23 verses and say it this way, just don't do it. So Paul brings out gospel truth so that we might look again on Christ on the cross and see that we were the cause of his being there. Every need that we have to be cleansed and purified and washed of the defilement of our sin comes from, comes through the blood Jesus shed on our behalf. And that's why Paul can call us in Romans 6 to be dead to sin, Dead to sin by our profession of Christ. Dead to sin by our obligation to Christ. Dead to sin by virtue of our new life given by Christ. Dead to sin by our union with Christ. As we are in Christ, he is our representative, our example to follow. So our fourth result of our spiritual union with Christ, we have the indwelling intelligence required to wage war against sin and win. We press on in knowledge. We press upward in holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the power you've given us in the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would all be consistent in dealing with sin and that it would be the battle of our life. Put it out and be holy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.